Hello and welcome to The George Sanders Show. This is our annual very slow motion building a top 100 movies of all time list episode. Uh, the way this works is that every year uh, Mike and I both or each pick 10 films to fill out a hypothetical sight and sound style ballot. Uh, we started this in 2012 and by the time the next sight and sound poll comes out in 2022, we will have done this 10 times each and we'll have a top 100 of all time made up of 10 years worth of hypothetical ballots. Confused yet? Does that make sense? Because I sure am. <laughs> all right. Uh, this, is, this is the third time I believe we've done this in podcast form. Yes. And uh, we have uh, a number of films so far. Uh, there's a list of what we've picked so far up on Letterboxd, and I'm just going to go ahead and read the titles. I think we, we read them off on the last episode, but I'm going to read them again here just so everyone knows what we've picked so far. Uh, some of these, uh, uh, the first uh, several of these were picked by me, and then the rest were picked by Mike. Uh, I guess I'll... With some it. overlap. We should... We yeah, should there, that, there like, is some overlap. Know, there might be something uh, that's already on this list that, let's say, you picked two years ago that I might pick this year, right. or vice versa. So I'm going to read off all of my picks, and then I'm going to read off your picks, and you're you're missing two because you uh, didn't. Will you the ever rules let it go? <laughs> so uh, these are the uh, what thirty that I have so far. Uh, Seven Samurai, Chunking Express, Sunrise, A Song of Two Humans, Casablanca, Piero Lafoe, Night of the Hunter, La Commune, Paris 1871, Days of Heaven, Rio Bravo, and The Red Shoes. Uh, the Musketeers of Pig Alley, The Docks of New York, The Rules of the Game, Singing in the Rain, Vertigo, An Autumn Afternoon, Playtime, Annie Hall, Good Men, Good Women, and The Big Lebowski. Oki's Movie, Oxhide 2, Beau Travail, Only Yesterday, 36 Chamber of Shaolin, Touch of Evil, The Searchers, Duck Amuck, The Bandwagon, and The Shop Around the Corner. And now for yours, you also have Seven Samurai and Chunking Express and The Red Shoes, which you've picked twice. Woohoo! Uh, and uh, 36 Chamber of Shaolin, you've also picked. Yes. And then in addition to that, you have Sherlock Jr., Duck Soup, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, Rear Window, Once Upon a Time in the West. Pennies from Heaven, In the Mood for Love, The New World, Selena and Julie Go Boating, The Blue Angel, The Gold Rush, Strange Brew, Ikaru, Secret Sunshine, Blanca Nieves, The Big Sleep, Nosferatu, A Symphony of Horror, Notorious, Kiki's Delivery Service, Eraserhead, Safety Last, Trouble in Paradise, Back to the Future, and Death Proof. It's a hell of a list. Yeah. <laughs> So that is 54 titles with some repeats and, uh, and two duplicates. And now we are going to add 20 more films to the list, uh, but not necessarily 20 new titles. Right. 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 So let's go ahead and start with... Well, actually, we could just spoil it. Do you have anything that previously exists on the list so far? Uh, yes. Not on, my, not on my list. Well, yeah, I understand. <laughs> Okay, so we, okay. Uh, I have I have at least one title that is um, one of your picks. I, I'm I'm honored. Yeah. <laughs> what about you? Nope. And, all new, all new, my friend. Uh huh. Bigger and better every well, year. 
why don't you go ahead and, and start? Do you have a particular logic to the way you're going to present these, or are you just going to throw them out in random order? Uh, well, I've organized them chronologically in front of me, but I will kind of go, as I always do, and I'll try and play off of what you've just said and, and go from there. So That'll be uh, hard because you're going first. Well, <laughs> my second through tenth, so, you know, selections will will be reflective of what you've just said uh, in some form or fashion. Uh, and once again, one more uh, clarif clarifying note on this is that the order in which we say these on the show does not mean that they're ranked in that order. No, these yeah. are just 10 great movies. You can you can jumble them all up. You know, the first one I'm about to say doesn't mean it's better than another one or, or what have you. Yeah, so. the, the idea behind uh, a sight and sound style ballad is you're not picking necessarily the 10 greatest movies of all time, but rather you're picking like 10 movies that are great, that are also, you know, representative of some idea of cinema. Right. At least that's, I, how, that's I, how I look at it. Well, I, I hope that I achieved that with my list. Um, my first pick, um, I, I wanted to pick something. This show means a lot to me. Uh, and I wanted to pick something that, you know, was something that I got into because of the show or I finally got around to because of the show or something, you know, that's just been part of the DNA of the George Sanders show. And I actually debated between two films uh, I was actually really sticking with with uh, the one I ended up not choosing for for about a week, and I was really. But last minute, I changed my mind, um, and I'm going with H. C. Potter's Hell's a Poppin, mm. uh, which we <laughs> you can hear us talk about Hell's a Poppin on the Hell's a Poppin show, but I can talk about Hell's a Poppin until the cows come home. Uh, for those of you that just tune into this sight and sound poll, uh, what's wrong with you? Uh, and Hell's a Poppin' is just the most goofy comedy outside of the Marx Brothers that's ever been made. And maybe including the Marx Brothers, I'm not quite sure. It's just a laugh riot, uh, but also just willing to go to the craziest lengths to, to tell a joke. Or didn't even tell a joke, just to make some weird thing happen on screen. But it stars uh, Ole Olsen and Chick Johnson, who were two vaudeville performers and uh it the film begins five ten minutes worth of it is uh is actually the stage show hell's a poppin that they that they toured with for several years and it is insane it takes place in hell the devil's there uh, all kinds of crazy stuff is happening they show up there's a horse with a uh tic-tac-toe board on his ass and it's just bananas and then they they get told that this is not going to work as a movie and they need to rein it in, and they need to, uh, you know, throw in the conventions of a, of a typical MGM type of you know blockbuster entertainment that was being done in in the '40s, late '30s, early '40s. Uh, so they do, and they they shoehorn in a romance, and uh, but at every every moment it is undermining that entire idea, the entire movie, um, and it and it it's it's so. It's such a movie uh, that's out of its own. It, it it has nothing to do with its own time, really. It it there's there's moments in it that seem so um, progressive and so and so contemporary. There's a there's a scene where 
you know, character, uh, the slides come across the screen telling this kid in the audience to go home. It reminds you of like a Looney Tunes thing that would come like 10 years later. Uh, the movie's just hilarious from beginning to end. And uh, I love Hells of Poppin. Yeah, that, it is a, a great pick. Was that the, uh, was that, do we talk about on the episode where we talked about the genius of the system? Yep. It was the genius of the system <laughs> show where we did Hells of Poppin and the Barefoot Contessa, I think. That was, that was some interesting planning there. <laughs> and, you know, Hells of Poppin, I think we talked about it on the show too. Uh, we ran that. We, I, I paid money, good hard money to the Grand Illusion Theater uh, to screen that for a half dozen people or whatever. Um, and it, was, it was so far the, the, the only George Sanders show hosted screening. And it was a blast. I mean, I was just giggling like uh, like a schoolgirl. Uh, I don't care if anybody else had fun. I had fun. Yeah, it is. It is uh, a great, great movie. I actually uh, uh, somebody was like asking, uh, doing like a Twitter poll this week, and asked for like five movies that define like your taste in cinema. And Hell's a Poppin was one of my picks. There you go. So yeah, but it's not on on this list. I did pick. Another movie that we did a show about, though, uh, way back, I think, in the early days of the George Sanders show, we did uh, A Touch of Zen, the King mm-hmm. Who film, and that is my pick. Uh, it is uh, from 1971. It's a three-hour-long uh, wuja film that uh, kind of starts as almost a, a comedy with this, the scholars like interactions with his mom and she wants him to get married and he gets caught up in this mystery of uh, a missing general and the general's daughter and the uh, government agents that are after her. There's a, a big, uh, crazy elaborate, uh, night battle sequence that he helps them design to protect the, the girl in the middle and then in the the final third, it becomes an increasingly abstract Buddhist allegory, and it is uh, it is amazing, and it is getting restored. There's a new version out there. I've seen uh, there's a trailer online for the the restoration, and it looks absolutely beautiful. Like when we when we reviewed it for the show, we were only able to, able to watch the the crummy DVD that's yeah, out there. It was, it was pretty bad shape. Yeah. But it this, uh, this new restoration looks absolutely stunning and it's been playing theatrical theatrically, uh, around the world, but it has yet to come to the Seattle area to, uh, to our great sadness. But, uh, is there a word on the street that it, it that it might, or is, is uh, up in the air? No, no, <laughs> I, I there 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 are rumors that Criterion will be releasing it at some point, but I will not count any Criterion release of a Chinese language film until I actually see it because they haven't done it in like a decade. So, <laughs> I you know I uh, I sent them. I think I talked about this in the show too. This is just going to be the repeat episode, but I I sent them an email. After I saw uh, the uh, the victim, hmm. uh, the Sammo Hung film, and I said you should release this on DVD. And uh, I forget what the other movie I told them they should release on DVD was. And they responded, but they didn't even they didn't acknowledge the uh, the, the title. Yeah, yeah they, they didn't acknowledge that. That no, they they acknowledged the other thing I said, which which I forget which film it was, but it was not 
uh, a Chinese language film. Right. It was, you know, it was something else. They're like, that movie's, oh, it was Streetwise, I think. They're like, Streetwise yeah. is amazing. And then No Love for Sam. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, I, touches I, end. Yeah, I believe all they've released is In the Mood for Love, Yi Yi, and Chunking Express. Uh, well, Touches End is is great, and I and I do want to see it um, in in a new restored version because I, I do feel like um, my viewing experience was definitely not optimum for that. But it, yeah. it is a, is it an amazing movie that really does, like you said, it kind of takes this left turn um, and becomes something much more profound than what you would think going into it. Um, yeah, and it's it's quite a journey. Yeah. Uh, well, my next pick uh, is a film that, uh, you know, is this is one that shows up on a lot of lists for, you know, sight and sound type of of uh, polls and all that kind of stuff. Uh, deservedly so. Um, it's uh, from 1966 and it's Antonioni's Blow Up mm. uh, starring David Hemmings uh, as a fashionable London photographer, very hip dude who uh thinks that he sees in some of his uh, photographs as he's developing them uh some sort of crime or some sort of nefarious doings that have taken place in a park and the whole movie is about him trying to uncover it if there is an it to uncover um but it also is is just kind of a languid you know uh, depiction of just the the mod lifestyle in mid 60s London and it's it's pretty groovy uh the yardbirds are in there it's the yardbirds yes yeah they they they're playing a rock concert and he kind of walks in on it and stuff but it but it's a very mysterious movie and it comes to no definitive conclusions about anything and that's what makes it very uh it's 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 a movie you can rewatch over and over again because it's not about the mystery or anything like that. It's, it's a, it's a, it's about the nature of perception. Um, and I think it's, you know, it's, it's a really great solid movie. Yeah. I, I really love blow up, blow up. It's a, it's a movie that keeps getting remade, which is interesting. It's like, it's, I don't know of anything that preceded it, that it really kind of takes after, but it seems to have kind of set a new type of movie. Yes, and I haven't seen um, Blowout, the De Palma film. Uh, that's that's what it's called, right, Richard Volta? Yeah, I, I haven't seen that in in over twenty years. So. Yeah, um, but there's also the conversation, mm -hmm. uh, you know, which is a great movie, Coppola's Coppola's film from '74. Um, and yeah, but like you said, it's it's it's. I'd say yeah, definitely one of the most influential films of the you know second half of the 20th century, and. Uh, it's groovy, and yeah. Vanessa Redgrave's in it, and it's 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 really it it like unlike Hell's a Poppin', in a way, uh, this this is a perfect encapsulation of its time period, you know. Yeah, uh, and it it occupies like a, this weird time in in film history in, in the late '60s where, uh, like international art direct art house like film directors would make an English language film and it would get wide distribution and people would actually go and see it. Uh, the sixties were a different time, man. Uh, my, my mom went, was in college in 1967, 68, and she went to the university of Idaho, which is in Moscow, Idaho and blow up played and she went to see it. 
that's pretty that's pretty cool and she hated it but, <laughs> but she saw it like it was it was there like that was how how deeply it penetrated into the culture that that can you imagine that nowadays no 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 like the the modern equivalent of an antonioni or a roman polanski making an english language film and and it actually being popular yeah yeah so yeah that's sad <laughs> well do you have anything uh do you have a lighter note <laughs> uh no not really <laughs> but let's uh let's let's stay uh with uh italian directors making english language films and go with uh roberto rossellini's voyage in italy which is also known as journey to italy which i think is a much less interesting title uh you had quite the uh to do about this on letterbox this week sean yeah, uh, well, somebody did. I really didn't care so much, but um, it's about uh, it stars uh, Ingrid Bergman and the uh, D namesake of the show, uh, Mr. George Sanders, and they play a married couple. They've been married for eight years, uh, but they don't really get along. And when they're on uh, kind of an extended business trip slash vacation in Italy they realize that they don't really like each other and they don't really have anything in common. And so they kind of drift apart. They spend a couple of days away from each other. Uh, Ingrid Bergman goes to various museums and looks at art. And George Sanders goes to like uh, uh, parties with hip young people and uh, carries on a flirtation with a, a young woman uh, that leads nowhere. And then eventually they kind of come to this this kind of miraculous breakthrough where they realize that they really do love each other after all and it's amazing <laughs> that's have, a good pick have and you seen this i have seen this okay. uh and uh we were talking about uh ingrid bergman a, a few weeks back on the show and um you know particularly her collaborations with uh hitchcock and stuff but yeah th this movie is um one of a kind um, and it, and it, it really, it, it's, it's a, it's a difficult movie to kind of articulate what I, what I like about it. Cause it, it, it's kind of this kind of undercurrent that's going through the whole movie that, like you said, once it gets to the end, it's like, there's this payoff of, um, you know, the, the tables turn and, 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 and the rug is pulled out from under you and it makes logical sense and it, and, and it, and it's the best ending there can be for it. Um, but all signs in the movie prior to that point, uh, <laughs> do not lead you to that conclusion. And that's what makes it good is that, uh, Rossellini's able to do that and, and, and have it be more honest and, uh, kind of gut wrenching, and yet have a happy ending. Yeah, I mean, for me, it's it's one of the, the key movies of of all time. Like, there there's so much in in uh, the cinema that's come after Voyage in Italy that I think you can trace back to, to that movie, just in, in the rhythms and the way he kind of shoots the, the, the characters and the way the, the plot and the relationships just kind of grow. Uh, as the film goes along, as opposed to being kind of explained in, in dialogue or exposition, like you would get in a Hollywood film, that that so much of the the art cinema that follows 
is kind of indebted to this and it's and it's you know it's it's of this period in uh in italian cinema in the in the early 1950s when when people are trying you know different forms but i think uh that's it's best realized in in voyage in italy like it's like i don't i can't imagine the french new wave without voyage in italy mm -hmm. definitely or yeah. or something like uh linklater's uh before midnight Oh sure, yeah. You know, that, yeah. Yeah, there there are like more more obvious kind of riffs on it, but even something like like Hong Sang Soo's movies, and I I have vowed to compare everything to Hong Sang Soo from now on. Mm -hmm. But uh, <laughs> but that I I see in in Voyage in Italy. Yes, definitely. Yeah. Um, it's it's brutally honest, and and to you know cast yeah, I mean just the whole relationships going on in that yeah, it's it's intense <laughs> speaking of intense uh and continuing with our theme which apparently 2015 is the year of uh, italian filmmakers making english language films um my next pick is actually counterpoint to my previous pick of blow up uh and i i, I mentioned it briefly in passing on the show before but it's uh, one i saw earlier this year and or no late last year and and fell uh, madly in love with and it's dario argento's uh, 1975 film deep red which also stars david hemmings and kind of takes off from the same point as blow up where we think we've seen a crime we're not sure we're trying to investigate it. Uh, David Hemmings is like the coolest guy around. And this one is, then it, then they kind of take different paths. And this one, uh, he plays a musician, a pianist, um, and he witnesses the murder of a psychic. And uh, he goes on trying to track down the killer and it's really bloody, a uh, lot of, you know, stock kind of, I don't even want to say stock horror stuff, but there, there are genuine uh, shocks and thrills in here. And there's some really great uh, kind of planting that Argento does in this movie where uh, things pay off later on down the line. Um, and on top of that, there's just a phenomenal, phenomenal, one of the best soundtracks of all time from the band Goblin, who also worked on a uh, other Argento stuff like Suspiria and stuff. But for my money, Deep Red is the one to beat. Um, it is so it's gorgeous. Like the, it, it, the, the name Deep Red is, is perfectly titled because uh, it is a colorful, vibrant movie um, that goes for broke and is uh, just exhilarating, exhilarating work. And, and I haven't seen a lot of, you know, that genre of stuff. Um, you know, Suspiria is pretty much the other, other one from, you know, that, that time period. Um, but I, I think this one is the best that I've seen. Yeah. I, I haven't seen anything I've seen. I've seen one Argento film, uh, Suspiria and, and one Mario Bava film. And, and from that whole kind of, uh, movement of Italian filmmakers. Yeah. I am wholly ignorant. But it, but it <laughs> well, sounds good. You should check out Deep Red. It is, especially as a fan of Blow Up, like it, it's, it's riffing on it in in an interesting way. Um, but it's it's wholly its own kind of thing too, and uh, it's just so atmospheric and creepy, and uh, also totally goofy. You know, like who killed the psychic? You know what I'm saying? But uh, but it's but it's a lot of fun and. Uh, it rocks. 
Right on. Uh, so I think on that note, uh, we are going to take a break. We are we are five films in, so we're going to listen to some music. Uh, this week, we are listening to Franz Liszt because Liszt. Uh, the that wink wink. The uh, we opened the show with uh, with Alice Sarah Ott uh, in playing the uh, the prelude to Twelve Etudes de Execution. Transcendente, pardon my uh, pronunciation of French. Uh, and now we're going to listen to her again. This is uh, the piano concerto number one. Speaking of very violent, very colorful movies about killers, uh, my next pick is John Woo's The Killer, <laughs> which I've been I've been talking about John Woo all summer. We talked about A Better Tomorrow here on the show, and I just did a a John Woo episode of of They Shot Pictures. And in order to do that, I ended up wa- watching and and rewatching a bunch of the John Woo movies. And I think that I've decided that The Killer is my favorite of all of them. It's an insane movie, but it's just so kind of beautifully put together. It's uh, Chow Yun-Fat plays an assassin who accidentally blinds a woman, uh, a a singer uh, played by Sally Ye. And... uh, Months later, he finds her and befriends her and uh, decides to pull one last job to raise money to pay for her operation so she can get a, a, like a cornea transplant. And at the same time, a, a cop who does not follow any of the rules has uh, tracked him down. And the cop and the killer 
begin to uh, to realize that they have a kind of shared code of honor that distinguishes them from the uh, the local triad lord who uh, has no honor at all and is just out for his own greedy enrichment. And there's a lot more plot than that. There's like little uh, sub-characters like uh, uh, Chai and Fat's uh, agent, is a former triad, uh, who is really terrific as well. But the whole movie is told in this in this kind of gloriously hyperbolic style with like these ridiculously bright colors and these long montages and these pop songs that Salier sings that play over and over. The guy I played the the theme song um, on the Better Tomorrow episode. Uh, just because I, I can't think about the killer without getting that song stuck in my head. It's just so, it's so amazing. And it's, it's a really violent movie. It's a gangster movie. It's a heroic bloodshed movie, but it's also, you know, deeply, deeply romantic and it's a melodrama. It's, it's the magnificent obsession mixed with, uh, Jean-Pierre Melville's, uh, Le Samurai, which is no human in the right mind would combine those two <laughs> films, but John Woo did. And it's, it's amazing. Uh, it is a good film. I, you know, I'm not as well versed in John Woo as you, as, that's for sure. Uh, but I've watched, you know, a few this year, uh, including the killer. Um, and I, I, you know, on first viewing, I'm kind of leaning a better tomorrow, but I did really, really like, the killer uh and there's i mean i think some of the set pieces in that one are are superior uh, um and i and i think it's a and chai and fat is amazing mm -hmm. uh, you know that that goes without saying um and i'm excited we're going to be talking about him on the next episode of the show but we'll save that for later uh so no that's a great pick uh killer is really good and i still need to see bullet in the head and then i will be in sean's good graces again yeah fine for 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 a long time for forever, really, uh, do the right thing has been my number one film of 1989, and I have have bumped it down a spot. It's, now, it's now the killer. That's how in love I am with this movie right now. It's it, it's a great pick. Um, well, I, you know, there's there was the war, Sean, that you spoke of, mm -hmm. the war between John Woo and Choi Hark. And this, this go around, I have to side with Choi Hark as I pick 1984's Shanghai Blues Woo. as my next pick on the show. Um, we talked about it on the 84 episode, um, but it's amazing. I mean, <laughs> it's... I, it was it was a movie that kind of came out of I mean I'd heard great things about it you had mentioned it several times but it's still a movie that surprised me I I went in with high expectations and it su surpassed them left and right um, it's you know when I when I saw it I just I just said to myself this is what movies are for and the the film is a uh, sweeping epic ro romance that starts in 1937 Shanghai um, and a soldier and a, and a young woman, you know, have a kind of a, a brief but profound uh, meeting and they, they agree to meet each other uh, once the war is over and uh, the, the war ends um, 
the woman is a nightclub singer and uh and life is kind of settling back down uh and she takes in this girl uh to live with her and lo and behold the soldier's back and he lives above them uh but there's this you know you know it's kind of screwball romantic comedy kind of angle where you know one person falls in love with someone they don't realize the other person knows and there's all this confusion and chaos and craziness and it's thrown into the middle of this very sweeping gorgeously photographed and costumed uh period piece that uh i just ate up like chocolate cake on my birthday like it's 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 that it's so much fun and um the performances are fantastic and i have i have nothing but great things to say about shanghai blues i'm so excited to hear that that was <laughs> that was my my number one film that I saw for the first time in 2014 and I watched it like two or three times last year and I it is it is amazing I went back and forth on whether or not I should pick a, a, a Choi Hark film for this list this year and it would would have been between that and, and Peking Opera Blues but I, I felt that with Touches In and, and The Killer I, I kind of had that uh, that area covered this you time had around. Lockdown. Yeah, so so <laughs> there will be no more uh, Chinese language films from here on out on my list. Just uh, yeah, this and is if the you're end. and if you're keeping score at home, I still have not picked a Johnny Toe movie for my list. I was really close to picking a Johnny Toe. I was yeah. very very close, but he got bumped at the last minute um, for something that will be coming up uh, a little later in the show. Yeah, and and Shanghai Blues, of course, stars stars Salier, who was in The Killer, and and Sylvia Chang, who we will also be talking about next week. Or That's next, right. Not it's next all week. coming together. Not next week, but the next, next episode. Show. Yeah. Well, George Sander weeks are are fourteen yeah. days long. That's right. Well, speaking of the blues, my next pick is an animated film called Sita Sings the Blues. Hey! It is from, when is it from? 2008, I believe. All right. Uh, and it is kind of an adaptation of the Ramayana, the story of, of Sita and her husband Rama, who, uh, when Sita is kidnapped, uh, Rama comes to rescue her, but then when he takes her home, he thinks that maybe she slept with the guy who kidnapped her, uh, whether by choice or not. And then he doesn't like her, so he kicks her out, and she's very, very sad. And this story is is mixed in with the kind of autobiographical story of the animator, Nina Paley, as her marriage kind of dissolves, and she reads the Ramayana as kind of a... a consolation to try and help her cope with her own uh failed marriage and it's also mixed with uh with these three uh characters people from india who are trying to relate the story uh to the audience they're trying to narrate it but each of them comes from a different part of india and the story is different depending on where you're from so they're all telling the same story but different versions of it and it's told in, in several different animation styles, and it's cut with uh, these kind of jazz age. Annette Hanshaw, baby. Yeah, tunes sung by Annette Hanshaw, which uh, the director, Nina Paley, didn't, didn't bother to get the, the rights for, which was why the film didn't get distribution for a long time because she didn't pay for the music rights. Uh, and then I think eventually something was worked out, and it is out there now but 
it's uh it's an amazing movie it's a movie i first saw at the the first time i went to the vancouver film festival and instantly fell in love with it and been following it ever since kind of proselytizing for it we played it at uh we played it as a metro classic i have i bought the dvd when she was able to sell like a limited edition dvd of it it's great i, I love it yeah it, when it comes through the library um i always put it on display and yeah. hope someone takes it uh it's a great movie a great pick um that movie uh it's it's such a singular work and it, and and Nina Paley just she all of those kind of disparate elements like it, it sounds like it, it just there's too many plates spinning there mm -hmm. you know it seems like there's no way you can you can pull this off but it all coalesces and it all builds this bigger picture and um and on top of it I'm a sucker for that you know the Annette Hanshaw stuff from the that era. Um, Would you like to take a walk? Is like one of my favorite songs of all time, uh, and so that's just catnip to me. And it, it, that's a movie that, um, yeah, it, with animation. I you know I, I I'm I'm an animation kind of dork, um, and it it's it's great to see new things done with animation. You know nowadays everything. I mean you, you get stellar examples of the form of cg and all that kind of stuff but you know she's using tools that everybody can use flash and just like all these kind of things but in the hands of a consummate artist it's all special and it all it it, it, it there's passion coursing through it and it's uh beautiful and i love it yeah, it, it almost like functions just as a, a as a compendium of all of the the ways you can make an animated film just on your laptop. Right, right. Just the with using are... with using the tools that anyone can can get. Right, the tools are in your hands, and yet, you know, it's like in Ratatouille. <laughs> you know, anyone can cook, right. but that just means you know. <laughs> Not to not to turn it into a Brad Bird thing here, but uh, that's a great pick. Uh, well, talking about doomed relationships uh this is probably one of the most devastating that i can think of in cinema history one of the most volatile and uh shocking and deeply deeply sad and it's nicholas ray's in a lonely place mm -hmm. from 1950 uh and it stars humphrey bogart as a uh, screenwriter he's got some issues I'll come out and say it. Got some issues, uh, but he uh, he kind of falls for Gloria Graham because who wouldn't, right? I mean, Nicholas yeah. Ray did. <laughs> Even if she sleeps with your son, who cares? She's yeah. amazing. Um, Gloria Graham had quite an interesting life. Uh, so did Nicholas Ray. So did Nicholas Ray. <laughs> so did Humphrey Bogart. But mm -hmm. uh, but that movie, the the thing about that movie in a lonely place, and it's phenomenal. It's just, it's absolutely wonderful. But the, the thing I want to single out about it, um, because I've, it took me a while. And I, uh, Humphrey Bogart. I, I always kind of respected the guy, but he wasn't my go-to actor in that era. He wasn't, you know, I, as a presence, he was very, you know, good. He had a, he had a strong presence, you know, like John Wayne has a presence, you know. But this movie is one of the greatest acting performances I can think of. 
and it's it's easily the best performance Humphrey Bogart has ever given, um, it, it, because he's vulnerable. He's not willing. He is willing. Excuse me. He's willing to to uh, be really ugly, you know, uh, throughout this movie. And and but there's that vulnerability that comes through, and you just you. You can't. You're just fascinated by this guy and and the situation that's going on. Um, anyway, I didn't even set it up, but basically, there's he might be responsible for murder, but we're not sure. Um, but who yeah. cares? It doesn't matter. That's kind of beside the point. Right. Because this movie is about the relationships, and it's one of one of the great noir. I uh, I, I I did a I, every March, I do a, a a genre month. I did last year. I did westerns. This year I did uh, noir, and uh, you'll notice that as this list goes on, because there are a few more choices from that from that month, uh, just to kind of cement 2015 in place. But no movie from that month or or any other uh, is is in higher esteem with me than In a Lonely Place. Uh, yeah, it's also a film like like a lot of noirs are about uh, kind of a masculine insecurity, like he's. Uh, he what, overcompensates. Yeah, he he overcompensates, and he's like driven by by kind of jealousy and and so much anger, and it's it's these uh, this kind of crisis of masculinity thing that's going on in the post war era. Um, my next pick is another film from 1950 about a particularly feminine kind of insecurity, and it is all about Eve. Bravo, my friend. <laughs> Bravo. Uh, which of course stars uh, Betty Davis uh, as an aging actress uh, on the stage who meets a young woman who appears to idolize her. And the young woman, uh, Eve, played by Ann Baxter, slowly kind of takes over her life and then replaces her as a star. And it's about a lot of things, but mostly it's about Betty Davis and, and her character's kind of coming to terms with her with the the downside of his her career which is really kind of sad oh absolutely uh and but that's a good that's a good element to pick up on because um i don't necessarily think a lot of people see it in those terms um at least the first time you watch it or whatever it's just more about the the you know backstabbing and, and yeah well, one of the great things about All That Eve is that there are a number of different ways to watch it. Like I remember when we when we played it, the there there was like a packed audience for it. I think we had like a, over a hundred people for it, and there were like little pockets of the crowd that were reacting to different things in different ways. Like there were people who were viewing it as like this you know, a, a, a melodrama. Some people just saw it as a straight comedy. Some people thought it was, it was camp. You know, there were all of these different reactions and you could feel it just kind of ripple around the auditorium that everybody was liking it, but everyone was liking it for different reasons. And uh, there's just, there's so much to it. And it, it does also feature uh, the very best George Sanders performance. He's fabulous in it like just fabulous he was born for that role yeah and he's he's terrific and he's terrific in everything i mean 
even yeah, when he's but, even uh, when he's phoning it in late in his career, he's he's still great and he's phenomenal in Voyage in Italy. But uh, George Sanders in All About Eve is like a a definitional definitional performance of movies. Yeah, and it, going back to what you're saying and actually tying in with his character, um, you know. The movie wouldn't be remembered nowadays if it was just for its like acidic kind of bitter. I mean, it's it's a pretty bitter movie, <laughs> you know. It's got that whole you know backstage drama kind of thing going. But like you said, all those other elements sprinkled in there is why that movie uh, stands the test of time and, and is something that's and that is it's it's quotable, it's rewatchable. Every performance down the line is phenomenal. Marilyn Monroe, yeah, in it for like what a minute, mm-hmm. amazing. <laughs> well, that's a great pick. Uh, we're gonna take another break here. Yeah, what are we we're at the halfway point? What are we gonna listen to? Let's uh, let's see. the uh, The last one was was the piano concerto. So let's listen to something a little quieter. Let's go with uh, uh, Martha Argerich and the piano sonata in B minor. Another feminine perspective, uh, turning our eyes now to uh, 1975, uh, and uh, I'm going to try and say the full name here, Jean Dielman, 23 Quai du Commerce, 1080 Brussels. 
How is that? Okay. Um, <laughs> uh, I think that's better than my pronunciation of the Franz Liszt song. So, hey, I'm going to try to speak Romanian later in the show. So, <laughs> God help us all. Uh, so, we've I think we've talked about this film in passing more often than probably anything else on the show, besides like Hong Sang Soo or Johnny Toe or something like that. But uh, there's a good reason why um, this 200 minute long movie doesn't have much going on <laughs> during its 201 minutes but it for every second of it it is captivating and it it follows a housewife uh delphine seerig uh is that good how is that um and she's uh, sure seerig i think so. seerig all right seerig uh she's a, a widowed housewife and and the film just follows her um doing her day-to-day stuff she gets up, she makes the bed, she goes downstairs, make a cup of coffee, she cleans some dishes, she goes to the store, gets some groceries, comes home, cooks a sandwich, or makes a sandwich, turns a trick, because that's what you do to pay the bills every once in a while, you know, cleans the bed, goes about her day, goes, sits in a park, blah, 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 blah. Sounds so boring, but my God, uh, Chantal Ackerman direct, wrote and directed it, and uh, it's it's a movie that just subconsciously builds to this climax that I won't spoil, spoil uh, because well you can't really spoil it, but I'm still not going to talk about it anyway. But um, it it the the ending is a gut punch that uh, makes all everything that comes before it it puts it in a stark contrast and makes it so much richer. Um, and it is a, a great feminist statement and uh, a wonderful, one of the best performances. I mean, without having to, you know, raise a voice or shed a tear or do any sort of, you know, histrionic kind of acting, chewing of scenery. There's no, you know, no scenery being chewed here. Um, it's, it's an amazing movie uh, that is one of a kind and uh, is, is, is definitely one I would put in a, in a personal pantheon of, of films that if you want to get cinema, you want to know what cinema can do and, and what it can say and capture that movie will do it. Yeah. It's, it's such a, a perfectly constructed thriller the way it, it kind of, it follows three days. If I remember yeah, I right, about, yeah, three and a half days or something. And like and it so painstakingly follows her routine, you know, just again and again, every single minute detail of what she does, and she does everything crisply and and precisely. That the first time she does something different than before is it's like the shower scene in Psycho. It's like you jump out of your seat because she forgot to turn off a light or something, right. and. And it just builds from there as as she just kind of kind of disintegrates and, and breaks down as this whole whole routine falls apart. It's it's an amazing film. It's one I want to rewatch, um, and I've been talking about it ever since I saw it. You know, and I and I talk about it to anybody that'll listen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, I, I've uh, still only seen it the one time. Yeah, but I, it's what I'm dying to rewatch. I think of moments from that movie all the time, and it's and it's minor things. It's not even like the the end, which is you know crazy, but um, 
the like just her sitting on a bench <laughs> like i'm like i want to go watch her sit on a bench you know? <laughs> uh, anyway yeah that, no. that movie rules well from a, a very long very serious film i'm going to transition to a very short very funny film and that is the film that is also on your list it is buster keaton's sherlock jr from 1924 uh, I'm, do, I'm doing the Arsenio uh, woot woot kind of <laughs> fist pump here, but you can't see it. Yeah, it's uh, it's very hard for me to pick a favorite Buster Keaton movie or a best Buster Keaton movie, but I think this one is kind of most representative of what makes him such a a, a great filmmaker. I, I almost went with the short one week uh, for the same reason, uh, but Sherlock Jr. just has has so much more in it just because it's like 10 times as long as one week or, or twice as long as one week, I guess. Um, it's about four times as long as one week. One week's two reels, isn't it? 20 minutes? No, is it? Okay, well, whatever. Uh, <laughs> anyways, four reels. This is about 40, 45 minutes long. Uh and it's it's kind of split in two halves. Uh, uh, Buster plays a a movie theater projectionist who has a girlfriend. Uh, the uh, girl, he has a rival for the girl's affection who frames Buster for theft. Uh, Buster gets very sad. He goes to the movies. He in uh, he imagines himself into the cinema where there's all kinds of just amazing tricks of editing that are still hilarious and. Uh, and shocking today, almost a hundred years after the film was made, um, and then he in, envisions this this whole movie where he's a private detective who solves the crime, and he solves his relationship problem through this kind of dream of cinema where he gets to do all kinds of crazy things, like jump through the body of his assistant, or drive a motorcycle for for miles just by sitting on the handlebars. Uh, it's it's a, a wondrous bit of cinema. Uh, unlike you, I have no problem qualifying Sherlock Jr. as the best uh, and my favorite Buster Keaton. It's got everything in it. It, Like you said, 45 minutes, uh, in and out, never a dull moment. Uh, and you're right, one week is 25 minutes. I looked it up. Mm-hmm. Um, two, of, two of my things about Sherlock Jr. that I adore, just utterly adore, Um one, the fact that Catherine McGuire, who plays his girlfriend, uh, in reality, it, while he's having this nap and this dream and he's thinking all this, she uncovers the the nefarious plot to frame Buster. Uh, she figures everything out in like five seconds, yeah. which, which I think is just that to me might be the funniest joke in the whole movie is 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 that yeah it's not a particularly difficult mystery but still she figures it out far far quicker <laughs> right you, it Buster. would be the shortest movie of all time if you just left it up to Catherine mcguire uh, right. uh two uh the scene where he's playing pool with and one of the pool balls is a bomb right that is the most thrilling piece of, of work of all time and and it and the joke that ends it oh my god just fantastic i love that movie uh great pick great pick sean thanks <laughs> uh well going from a film that i really pushed 
I've been pushing for years. Not that I turned you on to it or anything, but one that I, I definitely champion to one that you champion so much that I uh, got around to it and was was uh, ecstatic, just ecstatic with uh, with what I saw. Uh, and that's 1935's The Ruggles of Red Gap uh, from Leo McCary, uh, which we talked about McCary recently. Um I watched Make Way for Tomorrow, and obviously, you know, Duck Soup is is on our list um, already. But uh, Ruggles of Red Gap is just one. It's like Shanghai Blues. It's a it's a perfect entertainment that's got everything you could possibly want in a movie in it. It's hilarious. It's got a, a moment of just profound beauty and and just kind of lyrical. Uh, I don't know just emotion and uh and wonderful performances all the way through uh obviously headed by charles lawton who you know you could do a top 10 list of charles lawton movies uh and you'd be doing just fine but this is really one of one of the best performances i think he liked this performance so much uh that he ended up talking about it later in life too as one of as one of the best um but it's, it's basically he plays a <laughs> Two, two kind of, you know, well-meaning but very goofy and broad uh, caricatures of Americans uh, are abroad, and uh, they they win in a in a in a bet. They win a, an English butler played by Charles Lawton, who has to move from from England to the wilds of Washington State mm-hmm. uh, and be their butler. Uh, and he kind of, you know, he's very prim and proper, but he kind of comes out of his shell a little bit, um, as he, as he discovers different ways of, of life. And, and he really takes a shine to America and the ideals behind America. Um, very, very patriotic. This is a, this is one of the most patriotic movies, um, that isn't cloying or nauseating or, uh, forced in any sort of way. Um, it's, it's, it's just a great portrait of, of a country, uh, in, in the best possible light. And, uh, Charles Lawton reciting the Gettysburg address, uh, will make you cry. Yeah. It, it made me stand up off my couch. (laughs) (laughs) That 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 is it is uh, one of my favorite movies as well. It's uh, it's one of the most American movies. It's and and, and hurrah for America, right? I mean, yeah. come on. Well, it's the it's the kind of uh, it's the kind of movie that that America makes or made at at its best, and it's this kind of uh, it's an idealized version Absolutely. of America, but it's Absolutely. like it's an embodiment of that. American ideal. Yes. Yeah. It's good. <laughs> it's really good. And there's and there's so many there's so many great little characters in it. Like it's not just about about Lawton and the no. the, the two like really loud Americans. There's there's Lawton's uh, uh, former uh, boss who eventually comes over and and meets a, a young woman and they play the drums. Uh, there's uh, uh, Lawton's romance with uh, was it Zazu Pitts? Yep. Yeah. There's there's it's just uh, there's all of these like little details. This this whole community 
is fleshed out and all of these people and it's great perfectly constructed and just yeah uh five star entertainment <laughs> so that's my that's my pick right there yeah well on the the flip side of uh the american kind of class experience we have uh my next pick which is martin scorsese's the age of innocence from 1993 which i just watched again uh just this this past week like i've had a feeling for a while that it's it's much better than than people think it is but uh watching it again i i am convinced it is martin scorsese's best movie it's better than taxi driver it's better better than goodfellas it's better than hugo hugo is really good hugo's really good <laughs> the age of innocence is better and it's a it's an adaptation of the Edith Wharton novel. It stars Daniel Day Lewis uh, as uh, a a very rich attorney in New York society in the late nineteenth century. I think it's in the eighteen seventies, and he has uh, he he believes very much in the kind of social and class system that rules the uh, the elite of New York. While at the same time, he, he views himself as outside of it. He thinks that he understands the system better than anyone he sees around him. And through the course of the film, he learns that, in fact, rather than being the smartest person in the room, as he always thought he was, he was, in fact, the dumbest. And that every single one of the women around him who he thought he was superior to were manipulating the, him to their own purposes. And it's devastating and romantic and tragic, and he's likable in a weird way. Like he he does really dumb things. Like he he does not behave in a way that that we would because he he has this uh, kind of insane vision of the world. But by the end, it it almost becomes becomes poignant how how committed he is to this, this kind of backwards ideology that he has. And the, the women are in his life are, are Michelle Pfeiffer, who plays a, uh, the, I think she's the cousin of his fiance, who's played by Winona Ryder. And Pfeiffer is on the run from her husband, who was a European count, who apparently engaged in some unnamed uh, uh, perfidies and uh, has caused her to fled back to New York where she's considering getting a divorce. Uh, Winona Ryder is his young fiance, who he thinks is very dim, but she is actually uh, the one who is in charge of everything. And it's an absolutely gorgeous film. It's it's uh, there are are tons of of these these uh, tracking shots and dissolves of the little details of of the elite, all of the 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 kind of very expensive furniture and dishes and food and apartments and tapestries and clothes that they surround themselves with all all of like the the trappings of of wealth that are almost entirely unearned and they just exist in this world of their own it's uh, i love the age of innocence so much <laughs> Uh, that's one I need to see, and and I've I, you're not the only one that really champions that that film and and calls it an underrated uh, gem from Scorsese. And there's a lot of his stuff that um, you know I've seen a lot of Scorsese stuff, but there's also a lot I haven't seen like that and Bringing Out the Dead. I'm interested in that one. 
Um, but yeah, that one is definitely uh, a huge oversight on my part, and I I look forward to catching up with that sometime soon. Yeah, the the first time I saw it was was way back, like when it came out, uh, and I didn't like it because I didn't like the Daniel Day Lewis character. I'm like, you're dumb. Why don't you just you know go be with Michelle Pfeiffer when you like her more? Um, then I then I realized that that we're not supposed to actually agree with him. We're not, right. He's not the hero of the film. He's like the the tragic fool in the story. And then it, I then it made more sense to me. But just as the years go on, I hadn't seen it in in probably at least a decade, maybe maybe even longer. Um, but as it's, it's just kind of grown in my memory, and just rewatching it again, there were so many times I was just like I had like this big grin on my face, where I just started laughing because there was just something that was so cool, like just in the in the dialogue or a performance or or just a, a, a camera movement or or a cut that that Scorsese would do. It's just uh, the the movie is just so alive. Yeah, well, yeah, I was I was I, over the moon. That is probably the best adjective for a Martin Scorsese movie. Like yeah. he he makes movies that are alive. Yeah. You know, um, whether whatever genre he's working in, that that's what he does. Well, my pick, uh, my next one is is kind of like The Age of Innocence, uh, at least in your setup, where it's a uh, it's a film from kind of respected auteurs, uh, contemporary filmmakers um, that no one cares for as much as I do. <laughs> and I secretly, I not so secretly think this might be their best movie. And I, this is my death proof pick of this year. This is the one where I alienate people because I'm saying something controversial, but I've maintained this since I saw it in 2001. I love everything about the Coen brothers, the man who wasn't there. <laughs> Every piece of that goddamn movie is perfect in my mind. The cinematography is gorgeous. The Roger Deakins just killing it, like always. Um, the the Cohen take on a noir is 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 it's it's it, it, it's perfect. It, like it, it gets all of the notes right. It 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 they're clearly they clearly know the genre inside and out, but they imbue it with their own sensibilities in a way that just makes it so engaging and hilarious and devastating. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a comedy and a, just devastating portrait of, of, of loneliness. Um, Billy Bob Thornton plays a barber, uh, dim witted, not, you know, not too much going on there. He's a very simple man um, who all of a sudden kind of dreams bigger than, than his lot in life. And, uh, it takes place in Santa Rosa in 1947, which, uh, same time as shadow of a doubt from Hitchcock. And, uh, he's married to Francis McDormand, who is a bookkeeper for a, a downtown department store. And he gets the idea in his, in his head that he's gonna, he's gonna make it rich, uh, in the dry cleaning business, this newfangled dry cleaning business. Uh, but he needs money to do that. And so he comes up with a scheme that kind of blows up in his face because it's a Coen brothers movie and it leads to some really dark, very strange places by the end of it. Uh, you know, Roswell comes into play here and all kinds of weird stuff. But for, for me, I'm on this movie's wavelength from the opening 
credit shot of just the barber pole and the superimposed titles. I can see it in my head. I've I've just like ingrained this movie. Um, I think Billy Bob Thornton has never been better. Francis McDormand is amazing. Uh, all all the way down the line, James Gandolfini's in it, and then you get you know a side story with a young Scarlett Johansson um, playing. A, oh, and Tony Shalhoub as oh as Freddie Riedenschneider. Oh the oh the fast talking lawyer that comes to town. Oh my God, the man who wasn't there is 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 just exquisite. I I think it's the best. Yeah, I still haven't seen it since uh, since opening night. <laughs> I saw it. I was I was like, yeah, I was a little underwhelmed. Uh, I I did. Uh, I have it on DVD. Uh, I remember you've you've been been touting it for years, like long before we ever before there were podcasts, and uh, so I have it. I started watching it on your recommendation, and I only made it about twenty minutes in before I fell asleep. Oh, how could you sleep through a masterpiece like I, this? I, I'm I'm sorry. I I did. <laughs> uh, I, I I want to to watch it again. I want I want to like it more, but uh, something something about it just seems not right to me. Oh, it's so perfect. It's so right. The ending to me is the best ending in a Coen Brothers movie. The 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 finale of this thing left the when I first saw it. Uh, this movie fades to black over and over and over again, and I've and I've maintained for years that it, it's kind of like chapter breaks and like a pulp. Uh, fiction book or something like that um but the the fade out at the end of this movie when i first saw it i was just left gasping in the theater and i and it it's a beautiful movie that is also full of coen brothers wit and goofiness and uh you know cousin frankie's riding Eric garibaldi no uncle frankie's riding garibaldi uh anyway it's a great movie i don't remember how it ended well I won't spoil it for you. <laughs> it doesn't end well. Or maybe it does end well. It kind of ends well, depending on your perspective. But anyway, let's take a quick break. Have our own little chapter break here. Yeah. Uh, uh, this this next one is from uh, uh, Claudio Arrow, And I am not going to attempt to say this in French. Uh, it is uh, from the Poetic and Religious Harmonies. This is number three, The Blessing for God in His Solitude. That sounds kind of like uh, the man who wasn't there. Yeah. <laughs> That's why I picked it. Oh, nice.
All right, so you picked a uh, a Coen Brothers film noir pastiche. I am going to pick the real thing, and that is 1947's Out of the Past, which is the greatest film noir of them all, <laughs> without a doubt. Uh, it stars Robert Mitchum as a private detective who has... Uh, has moved to the country. He's running a gas station. He has a, a little uh, friend who's deaf. He's got a girlfriend who's a nice girl, and his past comes back to to haunt him. Uh, the The first part of the film is a, a a flashback of a time when he was hired by Kirk Douglas to track down uh, Jane Greer, who had run away with uh, some of Douglas's money. Uh, Greer and Mitchum, of course, fall in love, and then she betrays him, and he becomes very disillusioned and flees to the country. Now he has he has been sucked back by Douglas and Greer into their kind of web of, of deceit and treachery. He's being framed, but he's not really sure by whom or why, and then it all ends badly for everyone. It's directed by Jacques Teneur, uh, and it is... Uh, it is everything that when you think of a film noir, you think of out of the past. It is, it is everything that noir is. It's it's perfect. I won't disagree with with uh, that assessment. Um, I I do have my own personal. I, I think I I like in a lonely place more, and I like the big sleep more. But I know what you're saying. It is the quintessential. It is the template. It is the you know, crystallized version of a film noir. And it, it is, and, it's, and I love it. Don't get me wrong. It's great. Yeah. I mean, in, in a lonely place, uh, it doesn't, it doesn't really have your, like it, it's, it's a noir. I, I think you can call it that, but it doesn't, it doesn't have your detective. It doesn't have your, uh, uh, fun all really. Uh, big sleep doesn't have the, the, the darkness, the, the sense of, of fatalism, that you get in in out of the past out of the past uh right. big sleep is is much more like uh it's it's almost a comedy at times you oh, know totally. it's 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 as much in the thin man tradition as it is uh you know related to something like touch of evil or, or kiss me deadly but but all of that is there in out of the past you have the the amazing you know snappy dialogue that is is both dark and and funny and and twisted but you also have this this sense of doom and regret hanging over everything yes it, it no it's a it's a wonderful movie it absolutely is um and and you're right it is is much more of a noir than those choices i just gave I'm Although glad. Like, I'm glad you now see it my way. Well, I still like those other movies more. Uh, well, transition from a film noir from 1947. We're going to now talk about a film noir from 1947. Um, my choice is another one that I saw during Noir Month this year, back in March. Uh, one that was completely off my radar. It was just you know I was just getting as many titles as I possibly could together. Uh, and this movie knocked me for a loop. And I'm not saying it's out of the past, but because uh, it doesn't have a lot of those trappings that you were just talking about in a noir that it needs. Um, but 1947's Nightmare Alley from Edmund Golding uh, is one of the most... It, it, it's a heavy-duty movie. And, it, and it's a movie that, like, for 1947, I find it very shocking very very shocking 
Uh, Tyrone Power plays a uh, kind of a two-bit, he kind of a low life. You know, he's he's been in and out of places. He's he's been working for um, like a, a traveling carnival kind of thing, um, and he ends up. I won't get into all the plot specifics here, but he ends up learning the tricks of a mentalist. Uh, the, the the way that, you know, a performer can pretend like they know something about you just by the way they ask a question or, um, you know, having the, the, the proper uh, techniques. And so he, he, he learns these things and he uses them for his own financial gain, initially just being a mentalist, but then he turns it into this almost religious like uh, conversion where he where he, he he's suckering people, but on a large scale uh, as, as if he was some, you know, snake oil salesman of a preacher or something like that. Uh, and the movie charts his rise and his inevitable downfall. Uh, Tyrone Power plays Stan Carlyle, the, the main character. Joan Blondell is the woman. Uh, Colleen Gray's in there as well. And it's 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 a it's a lower budget, lesser known uh, noir type film, but it is dealing with some big, heavy duty themes in it. And I loved it, ate it up. Thought it was just the bee's knees. Have you seen Nightmare Alley, Sean? Nope. It's really good. Yeah, it's it's one of the the more acclaimed noir films that I haven't seen, and and I've seen I've seen most of the big ones, but but that is one that I have not yet. It's shocking, like the stuff that happens in that movie. I was like, and I had been watching like thirty noir films that month, and this one came near the end, and it still had the power to kind of like. Uh, throw me for a loop uh in the best way possible and it and it kept me guessing and it's just a a um fascinating portrait of corruption and power and greed um and it's despicable and i love it sounds great thanks <laughs> uh well speaking of power and greed my next pick <laughs> is uh, the 1968 adaptation of James Goldman's play The Lion in Winter, starring Peter O'Toole as King Henry II and Catherine Hepburn as Eleanor of Aquitaine, as they meet up one Christmas to try and decide who's going to inherit the kingdom when Henry eventually dies. Uh, the contenders are their oldest uh, surviving son, uh, Richard, played by Anthony Hopkins in what I believe is his screen debut. Uh, his uh, younger brother Jeffrey, who everyone hates, and the youngest uh, John, uh, the future Prince John of the Robin Hood stories, and later King John, who signs the Magna Carta, who is played by Nigel Terry, who of course will go on to play King Arthur in uh, John Borman's Excalibur. Uh, the uh, they all gather for Christmas along with the. Uh, uh, King of France, who is very young at this time. I believe he was uh, 17 at the time the film was supposed to be set. And he's played by Timothy Dalton. And they all get together, and they all snipe, and they all hate each other, and they all scheme and backstab. And the the dialogue is almost as good as the American theater gets. It's about as close as you get to Shakespeare without Shakespeare. 
and the the performances with with a cast like that uh, are you would expect are amazing and they are Catherine Hepburn in one of her her great old lady performances playing playing Eleanor this this woman in just incredibly fascinating woman who is like the smartest and most powerful woman for hundreds of years in either direction in Europe and Catherine Hepburn is is perfect for playing her and and Peter O'Toole is her match in every way playing much older than he really is at the time uh I don't know. I, I I watched this. This is one I watched again. This is a movie that I've loved for like as long as I've been watching old movies. I think I first saw it when I was in high school, and uh, I watched it again because I wasn't really sure, you know, where where it stood. the The director Anthony Harvey isn't exactly known for being a good director, um, or really a director of much of anything. Uh, I wanted to see how it kind of stood up as a film as opposed to just like a filmed play with a lot of great actors. And it's, it's not bad. Uh, it's, uh, it intentionally kind of grunges up the, the medieval setting to where it's, it's very different from the typical Hollywood production. And it kind of anticipates the direction that, that costume pictures would be going in the 1970s with like the Richard Lester Three Musketeers movies, uh, where everything is kind of dirty and grimy and, and the, the, the Plantagenets are not, you know, fancy people. They eat their, their, their big meal in this, in this hall that is, it might as well be a bunch of Vikings. There's the dirt floor. There's these benches. Nobody has any forks. There's everyone eats like a, like a pig. It's just disastrous. And they're, you know, the richest people in the world, or at least in Europe. Uh, there's a lot of, of kind of very sixties touches to it. There's like a bombastic score. There's, uh, it's really kind of heightens the melodrama at times, but I it's still it's it's fun. I don't know. Have you seen The Lion in Winter? I have not seen The Lion in Winter. <sighs> what are you gonna do with me? I know. I know I'm very disappointed in you. Uh, you should see it. It's it's basically uh, something like All About Eve, but in 1183, and it is so full of of quotable lines. It's so much fun, and it is reasonably historically accurate <laughs> well i know that's a big sticking point for you so <laughs> it, is, it is and that's another reason why i wanted to rewatch it because i've been i've been on this like history movie kick and it's not so much that that i demand that that movies be historically accurate but if they're going to change history i want it to be for a good reason and at the time the the play in the movie was written uh there was a very popular theory that that uh richard the lionheart the the anthony hopkins character was actually gay uh that theory is less popular now there's like evidence for and evidence against it but the way the movie characterizes him is it's like a key plot point that that he is gay but he's still also you know, the greatest warrior of the Middle Ages. Uh, Anthony Hopkins is way too short to be playing him, but, you know, <laughs> he's a great actor. So Screw can, that, I'm not going to watch it. You can, you, can, you can almost believe it. But all of the, 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 the scheming and the, just the brilliance of, of Henry and, and Eleanor is amazing. It's just, I, I love it. I'll add it to the list. I, yeah, I, I want to see it. Well, my final pick is uh, one that I, the most recent film uh, that on my list, or most recent to me, should I say, I'm sorry. One, one I saw just a few months back and, and immediately 
five stars all the way top top of my list and i t- i talked about it for about half a second a couple shows ago um it's it's from the year before it's 1967 so year before lion and winter and i think there's probably a lot of dna between these two f- films uh they both have an animal in the title uh mm-hmm. that's a, that's a good sign uh, this is Jack Hill's debut feature, Spider Baby, uh, or the maddest story ever to- told, uh, which if you listen to the, the previous show, I did kind of set it up. But basically, there's this family of inbred uh, backwoods people who live in this giant house out in the middle of nowhere. Uh, and the, the parents, uh, of these, of these children, uh, or grown children, should I say they're about in their, their twenties, uh, died and, and, uh, some distant relatives are coming to claim the property. They are kind of bourgeois, uh, you know, bastards that kind of want to just take the land and, and, you know, maximize all the profit they can out of it. Uh, but they have to contend with these three siblings um, who are more than just a little bit weird. (laughs) And Lon Chaney Jr. is their caretaker. He was, he was, uh, he worked for the family for decades and, and then just, you know, he took on the role of taking care of the kids once the parents died. But uh, it is a gruesome, it's a B movie that's full of insanity. It's hilarious, shocking, and it was all made on like $10. I mean, this thing was, it was slapdash. I think Jack Hill threw the whole thing together, script and everything in about three weeks. And there's a vitality to that. That's just oozing off the screen. Uh, wonderful performances. You wouldn't expect it necessarily, but I, I said before Lon Chaney Jr. Gives like an Oscar worthy performance in this movie called spider baby. That is just, it's it's shocking that how how great he is in this and um people who went on to do a bunch of other stuff sid haig is in this he did a lot of other stuff with jack hill later on um and then people who kind of just disappeared like carol omart who plays emily and is the spider baby of the title who is just electrifying as she uh captures a, a handsome young man in a net and takes two butcher knives and she pretends to be the spider baby as she's going to eat him up and it is just a giddy delight from beginning to end. It's public domain. Jack Hill never got a dime for the stupid thing. It's online. It's everywhere. Arrow put it out recently. Spider Baby totally freaking rules. And uh, it's a it's a masterpiece. Yeah, I still haven't seen it since the last time you mentioned it. <laughs> I don't know if you'll like it as much as I did, but it's really freaking good. I, I'm I'm afraid of of spiders. Did I, did I do yeah, this did, joke last did, time? Yeah, you did. We did talk about that and babies too. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, I already already used that joke. Yeah. Um, All right. But Spider Baby, uh, it's it's one that I, I'm I'm really glad I got around to, and I'm glad that I saw it at this point in my kind of film obsession. I don't know if I would have appreciated it as much if I if I had seen it five years ago. Um, but there's a vitality to this, like I said, that is uh, just uh, wonderful. So, yeah, it's a good movie. Right on. Well, going from the uh, the rural poor to the urban poor, uh, my last pick is Charlie Chaplin's City Lights. A fantastic film. 
this is uh, kind of my default pick as the best Charlie Chaplin film, although really uh, I, I tend to go with like whichever of, of modern times, City Lights with the Gold Rush was the last one I saw. But, but City Lights is just, it's so, it's so perfect. It's so, it's, it's so romantic. It's so funny. And, and, you know, I don't know, I don't, I can't say anything new about City Lights. Like it is, it's amazing. I don't know. What do you say, what do you say about City Lights? He, he plays the tramp. He meets a a blind girl who sells flowers. He comes up with various schemes to earn some money to pay for her operation. And the whole time, and the whole time she thinks he's a millionaire, right? She thinks he's a millionaire and he hangs out with a millionaire who likes him when, uh, when the millionaire is drunk, he is Chaplin's best friend. But when he sobers up, he wants nothing to do with him. He has no idea who he is when he sobers up. There's, right. there's this disconnect where he, yeah, he doesn't, well, he, he doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't recognize him and he only recognizes him as, as being a tramp. When he's drunk, he sees him as like a fellow human being who enjoys drinking with him and, and gets into silly antics. Uh, they're equals when he's drunk, but when he's not, they are they are separated by by class differences. Right. Yeah. Uh, City Lights for me, is, you know, same kind of thing. It was always the one that I, at least for a, a good long stretch, it was the one that I was always saying, okay, that's the one. That's the masterpiece. That's the best. That you can't top it. Um, but as I mentioned a couple years back on on this very episode uh, on the on the Sight and Sound one. I I had a profound experience seeing the Gold Rush, and that one has since that day. Uh, and I'd seen that one; that was the first one I'd ever seen was the Gold Rush. But I I came back around to it and saw it on the big screen, and and, and it just devastated me. Um, and and not that this one doesn't this the, the what you can say about City Lights, City Lights, I can almost unequivocally say has the best ending of any movie ever made. It's so great. It's so, and how how radical is it for in 1931 for him to make, you know, a mainstream movie, not not an art movie, just a mainstream romantic comedy, end on such an ambiguous note, like just the, uh, the 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 tramp eventually pays for her operation. She she meets him. Uh, she realizes that he's not a millionaire, and it just kind of it ends there like you don't know if they live happily ever after you don't know if she's going to freak out in the same way that the millionaire freaks out when she sees you know who he really is yeah it ends with a shot i mean it ends with hope and fear on the face of charlie chaplin and there's yeah. no better image in cinema than hope and fear on the face of charlie chaplin it's, it's i mean it makes me want to cry just thinking about it right now yeah it's 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 amazing it's such a good performance from chaplin and and he's you know one of the like five greatest actors in in the history of cinema and i i think this is my favorite of his performances not just in his physical antics which you know, of course, are 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 genius, but but like you said, there's the 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 play of emotions, the 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 contradictions in in the tramp. Uh, he's he's just astounding. Yeah, yeah, and, and and if you ever, I mean, I say this about everything on the show, but if you ever ever get the chance to see City Lights on the big screen with a group of people, do it. Yeah. Because it, it because that's how it's meant to be seen, and 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 that collective experience of laughing along uh, with a room full of people at 
just the, the, the stupidest stuff, you know, when he, when he eats the slide whistle, I mean, just the, I mean, just stuff like that. It's so much fun. And then, and then, Oh wait, I'm crying. <laughs> yeah. Ch- Chaplin and Keaton both are still, are still remarkable to see with crowds. Uh, I don't know. I think, I, I think I've told the story before, but we, we played, uh, uh, the general, uh, in, in our theater and I'm, and I'm sitting there in the audience, uh, watch, watching the general and, uh, the, the Buster Keaton movie. And, uh, at one point I, I kind of look over and kind of look at the crowd and see how they're reacting. And there's this little kid, maybe six or seven years old, just staring up at the screen, like wrapped with attention. He's not squirming around. He's not bored. And he, his mouth is open. He's got this huge smile on his face and his eyes are just wide, just staring at the screen. And that's, you know, the, the effect of these movies, like the, the movies were made, you know, 80 years before he was born, but there he was just loving it. Yeah. That's, and that's, I think one of the reasons I've always gravitated towards those films is that they, they just break down any sort of guard or any sort of barrier between the audience and the film. You know, there are certain movies that we discussed earlier in this show that, uh, are not, and, and I don't want to say mass appeal or anything like that, but there are some movies that are harder to 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 get into uh, that we've mentioned on this show uh, today. But but those ones, you can be six years old, like I was when I first saw them, like a lot of people probably were, or you can be ninety six years old, and these and those movies will still resonate and and just they're 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 entirely successful and 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 no one's ever done it as well as those two and and they do it without they do it without pandering like it's not an appeal to the lowest common denominator that gives a mass appeal it's it's uh, an appeal to something that's that's like truly universal that everyone connects with and you know it's just it's humanity yeah yeah it's great good pick good pick all right so uh one more break? Yeah, where I listen to uh, uh, <laughs> I'm all I'm all sad now thinking of sad uh, city lights. So I'm gonna listen. We're gonna listen to a sad song here. This is uh, uh, "Stanchion in D Minor" by Lise De La Salle.
Okay, well, that'll do it for our 2015 Sight and Sound Top 10 Films of All Time show. We'll be back with a, a new list next year around Labor Day, so look out for that. Hopefully, we'll have some some great new picks to to pad out the list. But uh, no, nope, I'm, I'm all out of movies. That, that was it. That's it. I'm done. <laughs> Uh, there are no more good movies but our list is getting good it's it's looking nice and varied and interesting and i think there's a wealth of uh, great titles on there so uh we will update the letterboxed list of that uh in the week in the next week or two so you can keep an eye out for that uh follow along uh you can find out more about us and this show at the george sanders show.blogspot.com we're on twitter at Geo Sanders Show, and you can email us your list if you have a top 10 you want to throw our way uh, at the George Sanders Show at gmail.com. Next time on the show, uh, it's kind of going to be a dual theme in a way. Uh, w- just like this show is a tradition uh, for the George Sanders Show, this, uh, this episode, um, the next time we, we get together, it's going to be the second time we're going to do a live. Well, we're going to do we're going to do an in-person uh, show on location on location. That's a better way of saying it uh, at the AMC Pacific Place in downtown Seattle, because like clockwork, the new Johnny Toe movie's coming out <laughs> and uh, we're going to go see it opening night. Uh, it's called Office, uh, previously known as Design for Living. Uh, it's a musical starring Chow Yun-Fat and uh and Sylvia Chang. And, it, and based, it's good. based on her play. Right. And uh, Sean couldn't be happier <laughs> with this turn of events. Yeah. Um, it's going to be cool. I'm really looking forward to it. I'm, yeah, I'm re- watching a bunch of Johnny Toe, and, I'm, and I've got a couple that I haven't seen yet, like My Left Eye Sees Ghosts uh, at home right now. So I'm, mm-hmm. I'm getting excited. So I'm getting excited for it. Uh, yeah. yeah, rather than try and like squeeze it in in between doing another full show like we did like we did with don't go breaking my heart too i think we're, we're just going to make that one of the two movies we're going to talk about on the next show right because it also ties in with the main theme of the next show which is our vancouver film festival preview episode right we are we we just got the 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 schedule was just released for vancouver uh yesterday and we've spent the last 24 hours kind of culling through that and and making our proposed schedule for stuff we're going to see as of now the nine days that we're there i'm planning on trying to get to at least 31 movies <laughs> and sean you've probably got me beat by a, a few um uh, well I, I list a lot more i end up not seeing as many as as i put i have like a rough draft of my schedule up on on my blog and there's no way i'm going to sit and get to all of the movies but i try and have everything i have have something in like every time slot um and then i'll end up like skipping stuff in order to like write or sleep or eat or something like that right but, uh but 30 30 i think is a good number yeah yeah. That's a decent number. Um, and and so pairing with Office, the new Johnny Toe movie, um, we, we wanted to pick a, 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 a previous film by someone that's going to be at Vancouver with their new work um, that we haven't seen before, that we're not familiar with. And so we had a few options that we, we were going to go with, but uh, we're, we're going to watch Police Adjective, the Romanian film. And here we go from uh, Corneleu Poromboyu. <laughs> uh, sure. Yeah, sure. Why the hell not? Uh, whose new film, The Treasure, will be playing uh, at 
Viff, and and it it sounds really fun, and uh, I, I'm looking forward to both of those films. So uh, so that's that. And, yeah, and uh, and Sylvia Chang does have a film that she directed playing playing at Viff. So. No, oh, there you go. Yeah, yeah that's, Office that's is a, not entirely without connection either. I mean, right. I've seen other films that she's directed, but but you have not. So, right. You know, I, it's not uh, it's not entirely in breaking with the theme. Sure, I yeah. got it. Yeah. Um, in between now and then, um, there's a whole bunch of interesting film titles uh, at the New Beverly Cinema down in La La Land, uh, mm. Quentin Tarantino's theater, which does exclusively 35 millimeter. Uh, showings. Uh, they're doing a tribute to the Shaw brothers uh, throughout the month, and there is double features uh, all down the line. Uh, a lot of these I haven't seen, uh, but you've got Golden Swallow, Masked Avengers, The Avenging Eagle, Five Deadly Venoms, uh, King Boxer, Fists of the White Lotus, The Bamboo House of Dolls, Human Lanterns, Five Fingers of Death, Fists of the White Lotus again. Uh, Black Magic, The Boxer's Omen, One-Armed Swordsman, the new One-Armed Swordsman. Uh, but the one I'm going to suggest is is the one featuring uh, a film that we both picked last year for our Sight and Sound uh, poll on September 9th and 10th. It's a Wednesday and a Thursday. Double feature, 35 millimeter of the 36 Chamber of Shaolin and the 8 Diagram Pole Fighter. Yes. <laughs> Huzzah! Yeah, uh, it, it it's a great program. Uh, I also I really recommend the the one arm swordsman uh, double feature that they're playing there, and also Golden Swallow, which is a really interesting film. If you've seen uh, uh, King Who's Come Drink with Me, uh, it is kind of a sequel to that, but by a director who is like almost the opposite in spirit to King Who by uh, by Cheng Che. Um, so yeah. That it's a it's a great program. It is not my rep pick because I did not think of it. Uh, <laughs> uh, mine is a film that is uh, that was on my list this year. It's part of the the BAM Cinematheque is doing a uh, Ingrid Bergman tribute. Uh, this uh, this past week was the 100th anniversary of her birth, and on September 19th and September 20th they are playing Voyage in Italy. Hey. Uh, it's, uh, it's not on film, but it doesn't matter because it's still an amazing movie and probably all the film prints are terrible. If you're a film purist, you can go a couple days earlier and see Alfred Hitchcock's Notorious with Ingrid Bergman, which is amazing and is playing on 35 millimeter. So definitely go see the Ingrid Bergman movies because she is, uh, terrific. She's the best. Yeah. Awesome. Well, until next time when we will be discussing Johnny Toe, that'll do it for us. Um, yeah. I got nothing else to say. Yeah, uh, we couldn't. Uh, I couldn't play a whole bunch of lists and not play uh, Hungarian Rhapsody number two. Uh, this is a ver an orchestral version of uh, probably list's most famous song, and it's by uh, uh, Arturo Toscanini conducting the NBC Symphony Orchestra which uh, is always a good bet to be awesome. So <laughs> here is that. <laughs>